I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 27th. This is an election update from Post Reports. On Monday night, the Supreme Court threw out a lower court ruling in Wisconsin, which had allowed for uh, voters to submit their absentee ballots and have them arrive up to six days after November 3rd in order to be counted. As long as they were postmarked by November 3rd, the court ruled that those ballots could be counted. The Supreme Court, in a 5-3 decision on Monday night, overturned that and mandated that all ballots be in hand by the state by Election Day itself. So there are a few reasons that Wisconsin in particular is of note. Donald Trump won it by fewer than 30,000 votes. And last spring during the primaries, the number of absentee ballots which were received after Election Day was in the tens of thousands. So it's not insignificant that we should see so many votes thrown out in a state that was at least in 2016, pretty close. Uh, And of course, we've seen a massive surge in absentee voting because of the coronavirus pandemic, which has meant that this is more of an issue now even than it was back then. When you couple that with the fact that the Postal Service has seen uh, significant delays over the course of the summer and even continuing, there was an assessment done by the Wall Street Journal that found that it could take up to 10 days to return a ballot in Wisconsin, meaning that if you sent your ballot even today, a week from Election Day, it may not get there uh, in time to be counted. So there are all these ways in which this significantly affects the number of people whose ballots might be considered by the state. My name is Philip Bump. I'm a national correspondent for The Washington Post. And this is one case that I think reflects larger arguments over this question of what happens if you put your ballot in the mail, it's postmarked before Election Day, but it doesn't actually get to the election office until after. Like that that's a big thing that states are dealing with right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. So states have different rules for governing when absentee ballots need to be in. California, for example, has such a a rule around postmarking. If it's postmarked by election day and it comes in later than that, they'll still count it, which is one of the reasons why historically California has been fairly slow to tally all of its results. It's got a lot of people and a lot of those ballots do actually end up coming in after election day and get added to the total. Other states do not allow that and other states mandate that they that ballots be in. Wisconsin has traditionally been one of those states Part of the reason that this was tossed by the court is that at least Justice Brett Kavanaugh felt that changing the rules to allow those ballots to come in up to six days afterward, uh, so close to an election, added some measure of uncertainty, which is one of the reasons he cited for rejecting the idea. And he wasn't speaking on behalf of everyone who sided with the majority in this, but he did kind of outline his thoughts on why he believed it was the right decision to make sure that these ballots that arrive after Election Day are not, in fact, counted. Can you talk a little bit more about what he said and why that's significant? So Kavanaugh's argument was threefold. The first was that he felt that one shouldn't change the rules of an election so close to the election itself. The second is that he didn't feel as though the court should be making decisions about what was best for public health. But really, the the most significant uh, reason that he gave was he felt that it was important that states be able to have firm deadlines for when votes uh, need to be in in order for them to be counted. 
to that end, he made a, a wide range of arguments for why this should not actually be an impediment to voters centered on the ability of voters to drop their ballots off in a, in a drop box and centered on the information that was provided to voters about when they needed to return their ballots in order for them to be counted. And, you know, making arguments that that it was necessary, for example, for there to at least be some semblance of a final tally on election night in order to ensure the stability of the electoral system. You know, a lot of the arguments he made, I think, are a little dubious, uh, which... Yeah, well, what are the holes in some of his reasoning that you think aren't quite looking at the whole picture? Well, I think there are two major problems with Kavanaugh's concurrence. The first is that he just sort of tries to blur past this question of what happens if a ballot arrives and it's not the voter's fault that it's late, which is absolutely going to be a problem in Wisconsin. We've seen these these delays in mail ballots. I mean, again, if we're talking in early October that the average is 10 days that it takes to send in a ballot, that's the average, which means that it could, you know, there may be places where it takes two weeks. If you send in your ballot, Following the state's guidelines saying, you know, you need to account for a a week for it to come back to the state. If you do that, put your ballot in the mail and it doesn't get there on time, that's not your fault. But Kavanaugh and the court majority said your ballot shouldn't count. There are a lot of, you know, he he sort of explored on that. And, well, you can go and check online and see whether or not your ballot's been counted. But in 2016, people who were relying on that system to check their ballots online were told it could take up to 45 days for their ballots to be shown on the online system, which obviously is not going to allow them then to, by Friday, say, okay, you know what, my ballot has been counted. I'm going to spoil that ballot and go out and vote in person. Uh, but then, of course, there's the alternate side of this, which is this argument that we need to know on election night. There needs to be some certainty on election night. The entire point here, of course, is that the election night totals are not necessarily representative of the will of the electorate because they are going to be heavily influenced by the people that vote on election day itself and less so absentee ballots, which take much longer to count, particularly in a year when we've seen a massive surge in turnout. And I think it's worth noting that Justice Kagan, who was in the minority on this opinion about about counting ballots in Wisconsin, that she put out an opinion that basically was talking about Kavanaugh's argument and essentially making that same case that like that this idea that that counting ballots after the fact is going to change like the real vote on election day is a flawed argument that the real vote and the real count is the one that includes all the ballots that were cast before election day. You're right. Kagan in her dissent points out exactly that point that when Kavanaugh says that it, it risks reversing the results of the election. I forget the exact expression he uses, but that, that that's not the case at all, that by not including all of these votes, you don't have an accurate sense of what the will of the electorate is. And I think it's interesting to point out that Kavanaugh is making one of two arguments, and it's not really clear which. Either he is arguing that these votes are necessarily illegitimate by having arrived late, which I think is, you know, debatable or he is fully embracing the Trumpian argument that by allowing ballots that were postmarked by election day to come in after election day, you're somehow kicking open the door to voter fraud, which has never been substantiated. Voter fraud is vanishingly rare, including in mail-in ballots. And this idea that by allowing ballots to be counted after that point, then allows people to swing the outcome of the election, I think is completely unfounded and a much more worrisome argument if that's the one that Kavanaugh is making. 
And I think that speaks to why these kind of two competing arguments from Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Kagan are so important right now. Like, yes, Wisconsin is a a swing state, and yes, it's important that ballots are counted there. But at the same time, it feels like this speaks to a more fundamental shift or tension in how these justices are looking at counting votes on Election Day. And it seems like there is a very real world in which they'll be making more decisions on that that could have an effect on what votes get counted where. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the the context for this isn't simply Wisconsin, obviously. It is broadly how the justices approach the idea of when and how a ballot should be counted by a voter. I think part of the challenge with Kavanaugh's uh, concurrence is simply that the arguments he makes aren't particularly strong ones, but they do tip his hand in terms of what he thinks the priorities are. But really what's worth focusing on here is those people who did everything that the state told them to do and their ballots still aren't counted. Kavanaugh says, toss them. And I think that that by itself suggests an approach to voting that I think differs from more left-leaning justices on the bench. I I know it's so hard to prognosticate these things. But what are the chances that we will hear more arguments about this on the Supreme Court in the next week or the days after the election? And like, what could those look like or how quickly will they start to happen? I think there's a 100 percent chance we're going to hear similar arguments. There's a case in Pennsylvania that's already pending that looks at something similar. The odds are extremely good that having set precedent. And in fact, you know, Kavanaugh and I believe Neil Gorsuch in, in his concurrence both argue that there it's important that there be a set standard that states adhere to, suggesting that the Pennsylvania fight will end up in the same place as the Wisconsin one. So I think it's extremely likely that it happens. You know, if you are someone who is worried about your vote counting, you need to no longer rely on the Postal Service in order to have that happen. Philip Bump writes about politics for The Post. If you have not voted already, campaigns and election experts are now saying that regardless of what the deadlines are in your state, it's probably too late to put your ballot in the mail. That is because of delays with the Postal Service. Instead, you need to plan to vote in person, either early or on Election Day, or if you already have a ballot in your hands, submit that at a Dropbox site or an election office. We'll include a link to our story on this from Jacob Bogage in our show notes, as well as a link to the Washington Post's How to Vote Guide, which can help you get information on your best options for voting at this point in the election. So we've seen coronavirus cases rising around the U.S. What does that mean for people who had been planning on voting on person, but now might be getting nervous about whether because of this rise in COVID cases that it could be dangerous? Well, it could be a deterrent in places like Texas, where, you know, mail-in ballots are reserved for sort of an exclusive group of eligible voters. Courts ruled out here in Texas that, you know, fear of coronavirus is not a good enough reason to qualify for a mail-in ballot. My name is Arelis Hernandez. I'm a reporter for The Washington Post. And, and where else are we seeing those kinds of restrictions where people are having to vote in person? So in addition to Texas, uh, we identified four other states. That's Louisiana, Mississippi, Indiana, 
and Tennessee. And so those are places where essentially saying, I'm just concerned about coronavirus and I want to vote by mail, that's not enough to actually get a a mail-in ballot. That's correct. The eligibility requirements for a mail-in ballot are sort of the threshold is, is pretty high. So for people who are facing this situation, what is it like for them kind of navigating how they're going to go out to the polls despite their concerns about whether or not they could get sick from doing that? Well, so it's sort of this situation where they're jumping through hoops and trying to figure out, you know, what they can and cannot do depending on what the latest rule rollout is in their particular state. So for someone like Dylan Dimas, who's 27 and was very concerned about contracting coronavirus, he went through this process where he was calling the Board of Elections and sort of having having it out with a, you know, a clerk. And when I called to inquire, you know, they essentially laid out all of these components to eligibility, right? Um, And since I didn't fall into that category, I'm not, you know, retired, I'm not 65 or older, I'm not incarcerated, and I wasn't going to be out of the county during early voting or on election day. So I really didn't have any option. It was just voting in person. And in the middle of sort of that inquiry were the court battles that were taking place about whether, you know, Texans who don't fall into those four or five different eligibility categories can indeed get a mail-in ballot. So it's frustrating, it's confusing, and it, it angers a lot of people because it's it's sort of, in their view, an unveiled uh, voter suppression tactic. Tell me, I, I mean, since, since you voted, something has happened to you, right? Yeah, so I am. Um tested positive for COVID. I can't say with certainty that that's where I contracted it, but that was one of my biggest concerns. Hmm. And what is the, I guess in the example of Texas, what does the state say about why they are refusing to modify these restrictions or refusing to kind of put new accommodations in place because of the pandemic? Well, so their argument is that as they argued in court, that coronavirus or fear of coronavirus, which is, you know, it, we, we are living in a pandemic, but not everyone gets it. And we're not super clear on, you know, who's going to get it and when that that fear in and of itself is so abstract, I guess, to some degree, that it's not enough of a reason, say, you know, someone who suffers from multiple sclerosis and has a, you know, a suppressed immune system. Um, and, and requesting a mail-in ballot, and that that alone cannot be the reason for why they want a mail-in ballot. Now, keep in mind, though, that Texas is a state that is famous for its voter suppression tactics of the the dominant Republican Party here. They wouldn't call it voter suppression. They would call it, you know, their efforts to stamp out election fraud. But for many people who are not Republicans or even people who are Republicans, um, and have watched the administration of Greg Abbott work in the last several months, they would say it's voter suppression. And this argument that if you expand the rules at the last minute about who is allowed to vote by not showing up to the polling places in in person, that that could provide an opening for voter fraud. Is that rooted in any evidence? Are there cases of of fraud by mail-in or absentee ballot? So there are all kinds of anecdotes and stories about, you know, things like ballot harvesting or, you know, folks using the addresses of elderly people and requesting ballots in their name and then those ballots showing up at at people's doorsteps. Attorney General Ken Paxton here in Texas has prosecuted cases of alleged ballot harvesting or, or, you know, ballots being thrown out in different places 
But curious enough, in one of the more famous cases, I think it was two or four years ago, uh, that he prosecuted against four Hispanic women in the Fort Worth, Dallas area, none of those cases have been brought to trial. And so they made a big stink at the time as an example of election fraud. And still, you know, those cases have not been resolved. And that's sort of been a pattern, uh, according to activists, voting rights activists here in Texas, that, you know, the administration will sort of roll out these allegations and scare people, you know, that there is rampant fraud and then not sort of, you know, provide the evidence that it's happening. So then, you know, here we are basically a week out from the election and it's clear that the rules are going to stay the rules for the next week and that people aren't going to have these alternative forms of being able to cast their ballot. Is there a a concern that this could have a real impact on who ends up actually voting, that that people potentially with compromised immune systems or older people, that they'll just decide that it's too risky to vote? So I think that's always been a concern. And what's sort of, I guess, buffeted that that concern to some degree is the record turnout that has taken place in not just in Texas, but in these other states. Right. It, in And across the country, people are turning out to vote in numbers we haven't seen since, you know, exceeding the numbers in 2016. Now, here specifically in Texas, I, I had a chance to talk to voters in, in both Houston and San Antonio. And there's a wicked amount of uh, enthusiasm coming from voters. Yes, it's 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 something that could stop some people from voting. But I'll give you the example of Mary Noel, who was featured in, in a story we did in the Post recently. You know, she brought her chair. She qualified for a mail-in ballot, but she wanted to make the physical sacrifice and be there in person on the first day of early voting. Brought her chair. Her husband was in line. She let him stand and then she she would put her chair like a few yards in front of her until he caught up to her. And, and they voted in person. And that's the kind of enthusiasm that I think is encouraging Democrats right now. And how how long do that couple have to wait in order to, to vote? So in this downtown Houston location, they waited about like, I think, two, two to two and a half hours. <laughs> that's a pretty long time. Yeah. No. And I think that's uh, that's also an argument that's being made by politicians across the country. It's like, look, people shouldn't have to be waiting this long. Why is it taking this long? And, you know, Houston is a place where they tripled the number of early voting locations. They've got buses taking people. There's drive through locations. I mean, there there are as many options as they can legally as, you know, the the governor sort of lets them. Right. They they had that setback where they some of its largest urban counties had made plans for having several drop off locations for mail in ballots. So these are for folks who might not be feeling so confident about putting it into the the postal service so that they can drop them off in person. And they're not like boxes where you can just leave them as they are in other states. Texas makes a little bit more restrictive, I guess. And so you actually physically have to go into the location, show your ID and then give the the mail-in ballot. And there were 12 of these locations in Harris County, the third largest county in the country, not just in population, but it's also huge in square mileage. They had 12 of these locations and they've reduced those to one. That was a decision that was made, I think, now three or four weeks ago by Abbott. The League of United Latin American Citizens and other groups uh, sued and it went back and forth yo-yoing between uh, the different circuit courts until it went to the Court of Appeals in the Fifth Circuit, which was one of the most conservative uh, circuits in the country. And they sided with the governor on that. So Harris County has now been reduced to that. And that's a problem for specifically, at least voting rights activists say, it's a problem for people who 
don't get easy access to transportation or it's difficult to move around folks who have disabilities or who just don't have access to to a car or something like that, that this is, you know, it's really restrictive and it hurts them. How have Democrats and voting rights advocates responded to the restrictions on voting in these states? Oh, they've howled. Uh, they've brought out their lawsuits. They've, you know, pushed against uh, what, again, looks like sort of barefaced suppression. And it's angered a lot of people. And I think they're using that as well to, to buoy that enthusiasm in the hopes, I think, that by being very, very public about these movements by Republican administrations, that that will push and motivate their voters to come out. Aurelise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. As Americans all over the country are planning to cast their vote in this year's election, astronauts in outer space will also be voting. I'm Ruby Mellon. I'm an assistant editor on the Washington Post Foreign Desk. Hi, Drew. Um, I'm Ruby from the Washington Post. Hi, Ruby. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Um, I spoke with Andrew R. Morgan, who is a U.S. astronaut. He's not in space now, but in 2019, he voted from the International Space Station and sent his ballot to his home of Lawrence County, Pennsylvania. I was the first, at least in recent memory, to do it in Pennsylvania. Morgan follows a long line of astronauts who have been able to vote from outer space. This right was kind of enshrined in 1997. NASA calls it vote while you float. And it was enshrined in 1997 because in 1996, one astronaut had raised that he wouldn't be able to vote in the presidential election because his absentee ballot would not arrive on time. So how does this even work? Well, the process starts about a year out. That's when astronauts will kind of tell NASA what elections they plan to vote in while they're in space. About six months out, they'll kind of submit their absentee ballot form request, except for when they tell them where they want the ballot to go to, they put something like the International Space Station. I don't always make the effort to vote in off, uh, off presidential years. When I spoke with Morgan, he was kind of honest and said that he didn't always vote in every election every year. We're up there as part of an international crew, and it's something, of course, that our country holds in the highest regard. But for him, he was going to be in the International Space Station for 2019, a technically off-election year. And for him, it was still really important to cast the vote from the International Space Station. He mentioned that, you know, you're around with international counterparts and democracy and the ability to vote in the United States was something that he really wanted to highlight while he was up there. I knew it was going to be, I'd be highly visible and I mm -hmm. wanted to demonstrate that. Um, it's also something that Americans on Earth are really trying to highlight. But in reality, in a lot of ways, they're having a harder time than these astronauts are. To some degree, 
I guess that's to be expected. Setting up this encrypted ballot for one astronaut is one thing, and then allowing an entire country to vote that way would be another. But on the other hand, we've seen in this election unparalleled voting difficulties with folks struggling to receive and return absentee ballots. Americans abroad are worried about making sure their vote counts, and officials in Pennsylvania and other states, as the Post reported, are fielding complaints from first-time voters who are having difficulty registering or requesting a mail-in ballot. The fact that we have no problem setting up a vote from outer space really kind of shows the failures of those policies and the imagination that make the system so obviously flawed for so many U.S. citizens on Earth. Ruby Mellon is an assistant editor at The Post. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>